What do you know about Jesus? Were you raised in church but know there's more to the story than the words on the page? Was his name forbidden in your home and no one ever explained why? My name is Miri Nadler and I'm curious about everything, especially the first century. Join me as we read through the Gospel of Matthew chapter by chapter and discuss the cultural, historical, and archaeological discoveries that will satiate our curiosity for who Jesus really is, what he really taught, and why those things changed the world as we know it. Welcome to Jesus Curious. Welcome to another episode of Jesus Curious. I'm your host, Mary Nadler, and today I have my friend, Matthew Vanderels, who is somebody that I met maybe less than a year ago, but uh, Matthew and his wife are one of those couples that once my husband and I got together with you guys, it was instant, like, we are friends. <laughs> we get each other. It was just, you're... You and your wife were just so real, like, not Southern real, like real, real people. And um, we really appreciate you. We appreciate that about you guys. Because in the South, that can be a little bit hard to find. It's true. It's true. And I want to talk you up a little bit because you are the pastor of Founded in Truth, which is in Fort Mill or Rock Hill? Rock Hill. Rock Hill, South Carolina. And... um, so, so Founded in Truth, I'm going to say is, is like kind of like a, a big tent um, Hebrew roots congregation. Is, was that accurate description? Sure. Um, we, I don't, we wouldn't call ourselves a Hebrew roots congregation, but we definitely incorporate Hebrew roots into our faith. So we're definitely okay. Hebrew roots leaning, I guess you could say. Um, there are... Uh, there's a lot of crazy Hebrew roots congregations out there. Yes, <laughs> I'd like to think we're not one of them. Uh, but yeah, we uh, we embrace the Sabbath. We embrace any and all aspects of the Torah uh, that we can possibly apply and implement today, uh, and give that honor. Uh, we uh, we love and are passionate about the feasts and the festivals, the feast days, mm-hmm. and the Torah, uh, and and all of that. And so uh, all of that, and of course, we uh, we incorporate that as well as uh, anything else that would orbit the Messiah, Yeshua, as the sole focus. So. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, you're definitely not on Hebrew roots, Messianic. All, those words are just, don't Google them, big spectrum. Isn't that so, horrible? Yeah. <laughs> go to the website, see what the, the, uh, the, the theology is, and test it against the scriptures. And I know that Founded in Truth yeah. will definitely line up for you. Um, we're, but, we're a church that loves the Torah. We can, I can say that. Yes, <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Um, and this is what, like, this is my high praise, is that um, we, I have a son who is very spirited, and he is a lot. He's rambunctious, he doesn't like to sit down, and he, he's just, a, you know, he, he's one of those people where you just dread going to quiet places. And um, Founded in Truth was a place where we could go where he could be who he was and be wherever he needed to be comfortable. And 
I believe that's because Founded in Truth has um, a ministerial mission um, of focusing on fostering and ministering to foster families. And which is so amazing because the Bible calls us to take care of the orphan and the widow. And as a church, you have made the conscious decision to focus on orphans. And um, so you have created an environment where children who are separated from their biological families, either for a long or short time, can feel comfortable being where they need to be in that space and doing what they need to do. And even though my child is not a foster child, he's just a rambunctious child that has a hard time sitting down, it made us feel very comfortable that he could just, you know, go in a different room if he needed to. And I know that there's other churches also in the area that cater to um, parents with special needs kids because parents with special needs kids often don't go to a congregation because they feel like they're a burden on that congregation or they don't get anything out of it because they have to be with their special needs kid the whole time. And, you know, it's just so much more of a burden. And so there's a special congregations that cater to them so that they can go and get spiritually refreshed. And I just found it so, so, so honoring to, um, to God that you created a special place with that focus and that said, I want to give you a hearty congratulations because you have a new member of your family. Yes. She is big. She's, what, 40 inches long? What? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> what is uh, it? The, but your bundle of joy is maybe about, like, you know, 38 pounds. Um, oh, she's, she's heavy for sure. She's a big cannonball. <laughs> she's awesome. My warrior princess. Uh, yeah, we just adopted uh, Evelyn. Uh, two weeks mm -hmm. ago, after uh, she's been with us for 1,403 days as our foster daughter. And um, now she is our, uh, as if she's natural born forever. And so the, uh, it's really neat, really neat. And so. she came to you when she was five weeks old? Yep, four or five weeks old, correct. Wow. She's a little baby. And uh, supposed to be, of course, you know, with foster care, uh, the... Uh, you're there for the child. You're there for reconciliation for children with their families, and so it's it's it, you don't you don't become a foster parent for adoption. Like that's not the goal. The goal is reconciliation. And so it's a little baby, and it was projected to hopefully you know only be for three to six months, and unfortunately, uh, that was not the case. It it went a lot longer, uh, and then it went past to the point when when it was ever supposed to go as far as the time length. COVID hit and. Uh, but uh, but yeah, we're very excited, and so thank you for that. It's it's amazing. It's a whole new. It's nice. It's kind of like getting married and uh, yeah. transition of. This is not temporary anymore. This right. is permanent forever, and so it's really nice to wake up to her every morning. And she comes and gives me a hug, and it's it's. I know this is going to continue forever. So right, it's not with a loose grip. It's it, it forever. is forever. Yes. Yeah. I wonder. I'm so happy for you guys. She is such a doll. Yeah. She's such a doll. Well, um, great. And is there anything else that you'd like to... I know that you weren't always in the position of pastor. What were you doing before then? Goodness. So I think I started jumping into kind of exploring the Torah and more mm -hmm. of the Hebraic roots 
of Christianity when I was a teenager. Uh, I went through an agnostic phase, you know, as teenagers do, I guess, rebellious. And, um, and I met a Jewish man who believed in Jesus. And at 16, 17 years old, it's like, wait, that doesn't, that doesn't, uh, that's new. I guess that makes sense. I don't know. And he held tour portion studies at his house every Wednesday night. And so I started attending at like 16, 17. And then uh, I met a Messianic rabbi a few years later and kind of mentored under or he was kind of a mentor to me for several years and then uh, uh, had several other mentors, uh, pastors and such, and then um, surrounded myself with uh, some Bible nerds along the way, uh, which is just a blessing. And then we uh, started a Bible study at our house um, every Shabbat uh, and, and in our living room, and that grew. God opened the door to something that I didn't even know uh, it had wasn't even on the radar. But uh, the doors opened, and uh, after a few months, we had about 40 or 45 people, including kids, coming to our home. And when my lovely wife put her foot down and said, listen, we're not doing this anymore at our house. It's too many people. <laughs> it's just too much. It's, we have a modest house. Uh, and so we started reaching out to other churches that allowed us to rent on Shabbat to continue this. And it just evolved into this amazing community that I am so blessed to simply be a part of. Um, and so that's that's kind of the history of, of FIT. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you guys are doing an amazing work there. Um, we are so happy when we're able to attend. We were um, semi-regular for a while, and then we moved up a little bit north, and God had uh, different plans for us in a different church, but... Uh, it definitely holds a special place for us because it was sure. you're coming out of a much more strict situation and it was like such a sigh of relief to have our rambunctious four-year-old be able to just <laughs> be himself <laughs> in a place we, so we have great. A, approximately 50 percent of our fellowship is under the age of 12 um <laughs> Yes, <laughs> and it, it it comes with uh, it comes with its um, I don't want to call them problems, challenges. Mm-hmm. It comes with challenges, but it's nothing short of a blessing. I'd rather have the challenges of having an overwhelming amount of children and everything that comes with that from all different backgrounds than not having children at all. And so I'm very very blessed that we have the capacity to volunteer to the children's ministry uh, and the volunteers that have have uh, have the experience or the training. Um, to be able to uh, meet children where they're at, whether foster or whatnot, uh, whatever background, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's nice. It's really cool. So, awesome. And you know, I think what's really cool too is that there is that separate ministry of if you're not called to be a foster parent, you can still participate in the calling of the congregation to that to care for the orphan and. you know, coming alongside those families, like you can babysit for them, you can make them a meal, you can do all those things in in many different capacities. And yeah, I just, I learned a lot. I really learned a lot how a congregation can just say, okay, we're choosing this. We can't do everything, but we can do this one thing. And And in this one way, we can make a bigger difference than if we chose all of these, you know, 12 things to do at once. So... Anyway, very, very cool. Very cool, yeah, for sure. So, 
right now. Now, this is like an evergreen content show. My hope is that people will find it and they will listen to it at all times of year. But as we are recording this, Hanukkah is next week. And um, that means donuts. Now, in the United States, we typically have potato pancakes more than we have donuts because I think like with Christmas, there's so many sweets. That's my guess. Sure, you're right. You're That's right. That's why the yeah. latkes take for, full force. But in Israel, it's all about donuts. And so the Jerusalem Post put out their, like, their ratings of the best donuts in Jerusalem. So I have rules about sufganyot, which are Hanukkah donuts versus regular donuts. And I'm curious what you think about sufganyot versus regular donuts, if you have rules about that. I don't, but I will be honest, I am not as familiar with sufganyot um, donuts, Hanukkah donuts. So I would love for you to tell me a little bit more about these because I'm going to Israel at the end of December and hopefully there'll be some leftovers there because I'm going to dive into this. We'll see. So yeah, you well, you can go to all of these places and sum them up, but so I'm from LA. Now LA has the best donuts in the United States. <laughs> and I didn't realize this until I moved to the East Coast. Um, but people will, will like say on the East Coast, oh, they have those fluffy LA donuts. And I was like, don't, doesn't everybody have those donuts? No, this is like an LA thing. Like LA has the best donuts. So LA donuts are big, they're fluffy, they're cheap, they're delicious. But Sufganyot, which I used to live right next to the largest grocery store west of the kosher grocery store west of the Mississippi, called right. um, Cambridge Farms, and they had the real Sufganyot, and they are non-dairy, of course, and they are very bready, like they're very thick and bready. Okay. And sufganya are more like um, uh, like a jelly donut. They're jelly donuts, so they're, they don't have the hole in the middle, but they're filled with jelly. And then you cover them in sugar, either refined sugar or powdered sugar. And so they're usually not glazed. And that's what it is. And it's more bready, it's less sweet, and it's like more dense. And that's what a sufganya is. Okay. It's like less like a donut and more like a bready treat okay but if we're going to talk about donuts i have lots of rules for that here too and i think that dunkin donuts does not qualify as a real donut qualifies okay, as like a plastic donut we live in north carolina but krispy kreme is not a donut either that's a krispy kreme and then there are duck donuts that are not donuts either. Oh, okay. They're disqualified <laughs> as well. All right. Because those are cake donuts. Okay. But you're giving me a look like you, like I you love don't know. some duck donuts. I'll surpass the other. You, you, it's fine. Yeah, but but they're cake. Do- but they're made from cake. They're not. Ma- they're not yeasty donuts. Okay, I guess. I usually go for the donut holes, so I'm not even sure I'm familiar okay. with the donuts donut. I just get the donut holes because you can get uh, a much more uh, eff- efficient uh, volume at once. Oh, I, I see more, more, more for your money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But so those are like the North Carolina cake donut. But there's a place that opened in North Carolina called OMG Donut. Okay. And that is a real LA donut. It's fluffy, and then you can also get filled donuts, and they fill them right there, and they're really, really good. But they're quite expensive. Near Raleigh, there's also Rise Donuts. Those are a little bit more bready. They're not a real LA donut, but they're decent. Um, and then right next to my bakery, there's a place that opened called Milk Bread. Okay. And they made they they have a restaurant in Davidson called um, Kindred. And they, like, before their your meal, they'll serve you milk bread, which is, like, a Japanese bread. Yeah. But during COVID, they had all this dough, and they didn't know what to do with it, so they made donuts out of it, and they're like, this is pretty darn good. So I tried that. That's delicious. It's not a real donut. But to me, I'm like, that, as sufganya, that would be delicious. So yeah. I have feelings about that, too. But my favorite donut is from a place in L.A. called Spud Nuts. And that is made from potato flour. Okay. And it's the most lightest, crispy donut that you'll ever have. Mm. So those are all my feelings about donuts. What about but the, feel, uh, what are the New Orleans donuts? The, ba- oh, what, how do you say the, it? Oh, the, um. It's not bagnets. It's ba- be- beignets. Beignets. I knew there was a beignets. What about a beignet? That sounds kind of like what you're talking about, right? I remember them being really bready with some sugar on them. They weren't filled, yes. though. We're going to get into it in the article a oh, little okay. bit. Yeah, see. But I feel like maybe they double fry them because they, beignets can be a little bit crusty, maybe, on the outside. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so the, those are my feelings about American donuts. But... What they've done in Israel is that they've taken this um, idea of sufganyot, of donuts, to like this crazy level. And um, it's absolutely insane. And some people are real purists, and some people are just like, we're going to go all the way decadent. And uh, it seems from the article that they're having trouble finding the right way to go. So, um, and they're ranging in price between 75 cents for a donut to all the way to like $3 for a donut. Okay. Was my calculation. Which still seems kind of cheap to me based on like what they're putting in the $3 donut. Yeah, right. But... They're complaining, of course, that it's too much. <laughs> so, um, the first place that they uh, that they did not like, they gave it five out of the no, four out of ten stars, was like the best place to get rugelach was um, in Machani Yehuda Shuk, a place called Marzipan. Marzipan, okay. And they said that it was like the bready. Um, Sufganya that I'm used to, but they didn't like it because the pow- there's so much powdered sugar it got on their clothes. To me, that doesn't sound like a problem. No, no, no. It's okay. But that sounds like a beignet to me. Yeah. I feel like they're just speaking the language of the South, though. 
I don't know. What do you well, we like in a do- What do you we, like we in don't, a donut? We don't, for sure, we don't mind getting dirty in the South when we eat. I mean, chicken no. wings and sloppy joes and donuts. Yeah, I love uh, filled donuts. Uh, yeah, nothing in it. it uh, I mean, they're good. Okay, well, the non donuts that I eat are good, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, filled with uh, custard or just something. Yeah, I like I like that. And I don't. Like I, I love like to me. I love a glazed donut, like a good glazed donut. I don't like it to be too extravagant. I want, I want just like a really, really delicious, if it has like a pinch of powdered sugar on it, as long as it's delicious, that's fine. But it has to be simple and tastes really, really good. So, but they didn't love that. That was the cheapest one. And that was the only one that they sold at Marzipan. But to me, that sounds like a real sufganya. So, the second one was from Neiman Bakery. But check this out. It had frosting, sprinkles, a little waffle cone on top with frosting in the waffle cone. Yeah, that seems like a lot. But again, I wouldn't I wouldn't mind that at all. You wouldn't mind it? That's no. for sure what my kid would choose. Anyway, yeah. they gave it 5 out of 10. They didn't like it. So the next one was called Mafia, which just means bakery, but I want to just call it Mafia because I own a bakery. Maybe I should sure. just have called it Mafia Bakery. Like that. I chose wrong for the name of my bakery. <laughs> Mafia Bakery. <That's> good. <laughs> um, so this place got 5.5 out of 10. I guess I gave it a little bit more. Um, and it had a good size. I guess they were just expecting more. I don't know. They're um, judging harshly. The next is Borekas Ima. And they're always ordering these Dolce de Leche donuts, which to me just sounds disgusting. Because Dolce de Leche to me is like very, very thick because I use it in my cakes. Yeah. And like very, very sweet. Yeah. And you're putting it in a donut. I want like a cream, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think I think I have a picture here of them. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's it'd be very very rich. Yeah. Um, did they like that one or no? No, they gave it. Uh, well, no, no, they gave them like a five out of ten, a six out of ten, and an eight out of ten. They the, so the five out of ten was for the dairy one, which was the dolce de leche. Six out of ten was for a parv one because they don't like the taste of parv chocolate. Okay. And then the eight out of ten um, was for another chocolate one that was parv, but I'm not. Wait, was it chocolate? Did they say they loved it because it tastes like an American donut? I think that's what they said. Yeah, it tastes like home, is what they said. Okay, so next was Yehuda, I don't know, Gajou de Paris, whatever that is, 7 out of 10. And this place was so confident that they were going to get the number one spot. Um, they're very much more expensive uh, bakery, and they make like all the cheesecakes for Shavuot. And um, they had what sounded amazing to me. It was a pistachio cream-filled donut with 
white chocolate topping on it. I'm like, sure, yeah. I don't like fancy donuts, but I think that would be really, really good. Um, I like pistachio anything. But then again, they get another dolce de leche one. Um, so they couldn't taste the dolce de leche, um, but they did like the pistachio one, and that that received the seven out of ten. Okay. So finally, we get to the one that I want to talk about, and that's a Roladine. Okay. Roladine's the most expensive. Roladine sells Sufganyot all year round. They're a Sufganyot shop, and they do wild Sufganyot. They do like different seasonal Sufganyot, like cookies. Like they think that they're a cookie shop, but they're donuts. And um, they got an 8.5 out of 10. And I don't even, they got some kind of berries and cream or whatever. But Rolla Dean is known for doing these really, um, I'm going to say, uh, avant-garde ads. So the last time I was in Israel, January 2020, um, they, <laughs> they had these ads everywhere. And they're always in English. So you know who they're advertising to. They're advertising to people with uh, more money than your native-born Israeli. They're advertising to, you know, Westerners. Um, And (laughs) they would have, like, a person. I I have pictures, but they're so small, I can't show them to you. But they, they have pictures of like two identical twins and they're each holding very different donuts and it will say in big letters, I'm unique. And then it uh, has a picture of a big muscly man and then he'll have like a donut with all this like soft topping on top and it says, I'm soft. And then <laughs> it has a picture of this very elderly woman with um, a, a donut with a bunch of sprinkles on it and says, I'm young. And then here's where we're getting into weird territory. <laughs> it has a picture of um, a man of African origin, um, who a very dark black man um, who has a yet like a yellow type of uh of donut and it says i'm blonde oh gosh (laughs) and then there is a picture of a woman or perhaps a trans woman it's hard to know and this person um is made to look i don't think this person is um albino but is made to look albino has white hair and yeah. like very light makeup and it says i'm black oh, i just pulled it up i just pulled it up <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> here's a, i'm blonde that's great he has a few dreads that are yellow oh my <laughs> yeah but the the very white person has like a you know very dark chocolate yeah um uh, donut and so <laughs> I took pictures of all of these and um, I showed a friend of mine who um, you know a blessed memory she has since passed of cancer but I was like what is the deal with this she goes yes do not come to Israel if you want 
you know, political correctness. It does not exist here. <laughs> That's good. Jeez. Well, I have to, I'll have to find this place and check it out when I'm there for sure. Looks like they have a few locations. They have over a hundred locations in Israel. So you'll definitely find it wherever you go. Good. So the winner, though, of their uh, competition was a place called English Cake. Um, and uh, the one that they liked was called Mozart uh donut and they liked a nougat fate flavored cream which i cannot imagine liking so much but that's what they liked so that was the winner and um yeah so their donuts there are on another level so i hope that you come back with your winners they also you know interestingly enough i don't know if they survived covid but when we were there the huge thing in Israel was waffle restaurants. Okay. And it was just like waffles with all the junk you can imagine on it. So, like dessert places that were just waffles with crap on it. <laughs> so, that was their main thing was waffles. Um, but yeah, so... It's a, it's a good time of year for donuts. Um, by the way, uh, if anybody's listening to this in real time, a little announcement. Next week, uh, if you're in the Charlotte area, there's going to be a Hanukkah party at Greater Life Church in Mint Hill at 6 p.m. Be there. That's it. You'll find all the information on my socials. All right. <laughs> so, and we will have donuts, delicious ones from OMG Donuts. I'll make sure of that. So, now we're going on to Matthew 5. And I will um, just backtrack a little bit. Last week we read um, Matthew 5 1 through 20. We are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we were with uh, Dr. Sophia Megayanis, who um, uh, she uh, is an expert in wisdom literature. And it was just, it actually was such a special uh, podcast for me um, because the Beatitudes were written in a wisdom literature uh, tradition. And so if you haven't listened to that podcast, I strongly recommend you go back and listen to it. But one thing that we discussed, um, and I don't know how you think about this, uh, Matthew, but I tend to think that the Sermon on the Mount is a recitation of the teachings that the disciples had to memorize from Yeshua. And I know that there's a lot of speculation as maybe it was a few sermons or, sure, um, you know, it definitely wasn't just one sermon because obviously Luke has the Sermon on the Plain, which is very yep. similar. Um, but the disciples' job uh, while they were following Yeshua around, or following Jesus around, is was to memorize everything he said and everything he did and imitate it. And uh, it seems to me 
that this this is plainly what to, I mean. Of course, I'm very self-assured. So it seems sure. to me this is plainly sure. what this is. Um, of course, you anyone's welcome to disagree with me. Um, but if that is the true, then this can definitely be one of the most complete teachings that we have from the Master um, and would be diligent of us as believers to memorize ourselves. What say you? Uh I don't see anything wrong with that. I think memorizing this would be, we're called to walk it out. Um, and this is, this is what a follower of, this is what a follower of Yeshua acts like. This is his teaching. And, um, and I believe this is his Torah teaching. Like this is the revelation of God of Torah actualized when it's actually being walked out in the way that God always intended it to be walked out in. Uh, and so, um, and so, yeah, I, I totally see the scene, at least how Matthew frames it out, as this type of new Moses going up on the mountain, uh, as he as he actually writes that in Matthew. He goes up on the mountain, he stands, he's teaching the revelation of God, uh, and you go through these things, and it's it's he's not contradicting Torah, but he's taking it to a whole other level. Um, and then, uh, you know, he comes down from the mountain, and then what happens in the next two chapters? Uh, ten miracles he brings with him not simply two tablets and ten commandments. Uh, and so I definitely see it as this is what, if you take it a step further, this is what Torah looks like when it's acted out, when you have the heart that Ezekiel says you're going to have. Um, after God removes the heart of stone and gives you the beating heart of flesh with his spirit, uh, when you're actually walking out, uh, the post-Jeremiah heart surgery, Jeremiah 31, when God's going to actually write the ethic of his heart on yours, that it would just beat. It won't be something like a checklist that you're trying to analyze. It's going to flow from within because of the Spirit. And, uh, and I think this is what Yeshua is teaching. He's teaching, you know, this is, the, this is the revelation of what God has always wanted his people to walk out and always come to. And it's very challenging, <laughs> to mm -hmm. say the least. It's super challenging. And it's super radical. And, uh, yeah, it, it started a revolution and it changed the world. And so as far as memorizing it, I have never thought about memorizing it word for word. But I like that idea. I think it's appropriate for sure. I honestly, you know, because we're called to, you know, the Great Commission says go and make disciples. And as parents, our first disciples are our children. And um, I'm kind of, I'm not above, like, you know, testing my kids on this. You know what I mean? Sure. Or even bribing, <laughs> bribing them. You know, like, read the, you know, memorize these ten verses and then you get a treat at the such and such store. Um, just because I, it is that important. And when you do learn something as a child... Um, it does stay with you, even if you, even if it doesn't stay with you into like junior high, as you become a, an adult and you're tested, it's funny how those things just come back to you Yeah. as an adult when you really need it. It's true. It's true. So, and you okay. say that and I just, I never realized it until now. Cause you know, Benjamin, uh, our first adopted son, we, we, son, we about, we adopted our first adopted son, we adopted him uh, seven years ago, 
when he was a born, and he's just an amazing kid. And I know everyone says that about about their kids, but he is just incredible. Uh, definitely um, our first blessing. And you know that that's a challenge as a parent because we all come from different backgrounds, as far as faith or upbringing, church, whatnot, and uh, and we have an opportunity to craft how we're going to introduce our children to the God that we worship, right? Uh, or how we're going to introduce our children to the Master, Yeshua. And and that's a daunting thing because I didn't realize that. So I'm holding him in my arms at three months old thinking, wow, this is my responsibility. And so I, I have not taught him to memorize the Sermon on the Mount, but that is the foundation that I'm laying before anything else. Like, he knows some of the stories of the Bible, but like Noah's Ark, he knows there's a boat with animals. He doesn't know about the whole flood, everyone drowns thing. Um, Isaac and Abraham, he does not know the story (laughs) of going up on the mountain, you know? And so I'm intentionally shielding him from uh, stories that would confuse him about the character of God and so on and so forth at his age. And this is what I've been focusing on. And so maybe I should start implementing uh, some repetition here uh, alongside the lessons. I think that's good. I think that's wise. It's really good. So, you know, it's interesting because in the previous, we're, we're coming off of, you know, the notorious, I've not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill. Um, if anyone um, nullifies the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, you shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven for... I say to you, unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so as I'm studying this, and you probably saw this from my outline, I said, my goodness, he's giving the Ten Commandments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Good. And he outlines it, uh, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. And then he he kind of combines, you shall not lie, and you shall not take the Lord's name in vain together. And, uh, and so on and so forth. And, um, which is just a very clever thing that Matthew does. I just, I, I marvel at the Apostle Matthew and how clever he is and how he organizes all of this information to be like, see what I did there? Yes. <laughs> every every go- author of the Bible, but every, uh, I like to think of every author, uh, biblical author, that uh, gospel gospel author, if you're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, I like to think of them as directors, and they're directing their own film, mm-hmm. portraying uh, what they want to emphasize most about Yeshua, about uh, his ministry. Uh, and I think that's absolutely beautiful, just the way you put it, is um, there might be little differences between them, and that's to be expected, because you have different authors, different directors, uh, highlighting and emphasizing different things of the story. Uh, but you're right. I think he's incredible, incredibly skilled to do that. And I think uh, that's the beauty of the Synoptic Gospels in a way, because first you have Mark, which everybody believes is the first gospel mm-hmm. that was written. Mark is a secretary of Peter. And in my mind, it makes me think that Peter is the one that's kind of saying, okay, Mark, let's write this down. Um, because... There's something in my head that says, okay, perhaps Peter didn't read and write in Greek, and so Mark's the one that's writing his letters or writing his gospel for him or something like this. 
Um, and I don't have proof of this. Uh, I just like to pretend I'm there. And sure. <laughs> so, and it would make sense that Peter would be the first one to make sure that, okay, you know, I'm the head apostle, we've got to get this written down. And, um, and so Mark kind of has this outline, and Matthew says, this is good. Let's spice it up. You know? That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And then Luke says, this is good. I've been talking to a few people, you know? And or I, I, let me let me uh, you know get some let me do some like reporting on some of these things kind of deal, and then John's just like I've been thinking about philosophy, so I'm gonna write something different. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah John um, goes his own way. He really he really wants to emphasize certain things about Yeshua more so than the other authors. Uh, the temple relationship as well as him being the lamb of God right. definitely definitely changes some things around uh, in light of that for sure. Right. So Anne Rand has three books that are exactly the same. She has We the Living, The Fountainhead, and um, Atlas Shrugged. And um, We the Living is like her autobiography the Fountainhead is her novel, and then Atlas Shrugged was her basic, like, obvious, you didn't understand what I was saying in The Fountainhead, so let me bang it, again, bang your head up against the wall with it. Yeah. And um, so when I look at the, uh, the Synoptic Gospels, not to compare <laughs> the works of Rand, but it's, to me, Matthew is like, uh, the Fountainhead. It is like the novel to me. It just flows so beautifully in how he um, uses these images. But it's my it's my personal it's my personal love. So that's sure. how it goes. So let's read it. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and start sure. um, with Matthew five twenty one through twenty two. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be answerable to the supreme court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So, that's pretty serious. Escalated quickly, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, any thoughts on uh, that passage that you want to come out of the gate with? So, oh Lord, I had it up, and here we go. My Bible app, I closed it accidentally. Let's see here. No, I think that's... Uh, so, again, you know, Yeshua is pointing out things that are incompatible with the kingdom of God, with the pure reign of God, and what it looks like when heaven crashes into earth uh, with his reign. And it, it it always tends to orbit, of course, interpersonal relationships, how we treat each other. And um, anger is a big deal, for sure, but to take it so far as to uh, using your speech or uh, having, you know, such malice for someone in bitterness, 
to result in murder, it really shakes you up a little bit uh, because Yeshua has taken this commandment that none of us we think we break any day of the week, at least I hope not, of literally taking someone's life uh, and transgressing this covenant of God. And here Yeshua is saying, yeah, you probably do more than you think just by opening your mouth and allowing the things of your heart that you like to brew up to spill out. And uh, yes, yeah, definitely convicting, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Wow, the hell of fire. Is that again? Okay. Well, you know, the words good for nothing and fool, you know, it made me really think about embarrassing somebody. Sure. And sure. in Judaism, there's a big, um, there's so many teachings about how um, you're literally murdering somebody when you embarrass them, um, because you are like taking away their the light of God. And the ironic benediction, um, we ask God to make His face to shine upon somebody. And when God's face shines upon somebody, they reflect God's image back. And um, so there is a teaching that, it, like it's a Talmudic teaching, that expands Psalm thirty-five, fifteen, uh, that uh, says that. Those who embarrass others do not have a place in the world to come. They basically say that David is teaching mm. that if you embarrass somebody, then it is worse than committing adultery. And, and you will not have a place in the kingdom of God. Um, now, it is taking great pains to expand on that passage to say such a thing. Well, sure. <laughs> but, sure. Uh, that's one of the passages that they use. Um, but Midrash Shmuel in Avot 3.15, he quotes Rav Menachem of the House of Meir. Um, and he says, one who is humiliated, his face first turns red and then turns white. Because due to the magnitude of the shame, his soul flies away as if it wanted to leave the body. Once the blood returns to its source, the face turns white like someone who has died. Mm. And um, so, Accurate. yes. <laughs> so intending to embarrass somebody is literally to... Um, remove God's image that they reflect back. And mm. it, that's how serious that people, you know, people talk about it in Judaism and yeah. it's akin to murdering somebody. Um, and clearly Yeshua feels the same way. Yeah. Uh, so it's so not only do we have something that it's interesting because we have record of rabbis building on this post Yeshua, not mm -hmm. necessarily prior. Um, so we don't really know if this was kind of a tradition prior or if this was something that was kind of carried from this teaching and 
or of similar teachings at the time and kind of flourished. But uh, it's certainly making the commandment of not murdering stronger, uh, that it's not just a matter of not having malice towards somebody that you take their life um, and acknowledging that, you know, this, that they are made in the image of God, but that somebody yeah. being made in the image of God is serious enough that you should not take their dignity away from them. That's good. That's real good. Man. Yeah, because I have been humiliated in my life um, and embarrassed, ashamed a little bit. And, uh, yeah, you, you don't come back from that without... Uh, deep wounds, for sure. That is that is an attack that uh, goes far beyond simply shutting everything off. Huh. And then that's like the thing that, that you relive yeah. over and over and over again. If ever yes. you're feeling like... the, I, And I find that if I'm feeling like I'm struggling in my faith, if I'm struggling emotionally, psychologically, it's that moment where I'm like, remember that time in 2005 when I did that thing and or that person said, here's your receipt, and I said, you too, and then I walked away. <laughs> yep. Yep. And you carry that with you for just in the lowest times and just, and you feel so less than. So. For sure. But what I found so interesting was in the next passage. Um, do you want to read the 23 through 26? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and the guard put you in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought of this in terms of what was said immediately prior, that to be in debtor's prison was certainly the most embarrassing thing. Sure. Because not only are you indebted to somebody, you're placed somewhere where you don't have any capacity to get out of that debt. You are eternally in a state of embarrassment. Mm. And so it's almost like Jesus is saying, not only should you not embarrass others, but do what you can to keep from putting yourself and your family in a state of shame. Yeah. And a lot of... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's just, it's, you know, pay your debt off while you have the chance. Like, get it resolved before it, before it hits your credit report. I don't know. Get, get it paid off before you get put in jail because that's, that's the thing. It's too late at that point. Like, once you're sent there, it's too late. So this is urgent. <laughs> This is not something to put in the back burner. Right. Don't 
This is to go do it now. Leave your gift to the altar, right? And don't give somebody else the opportunity mm. to... Be reconciled before you come before God. To embarrass you. Don't give somebody else the opportunity to go to the fiery hell by embarrassing you. <laughs> do you know of any, uh, any writings or commentaries, uh, Jewish commentaries, that highlight this scenario or riff off this? That you can think of? You know, I this one I didn't end up looking up. Okay. You no, know, I was I was just reading up on uh, the uh let's see where is it? In the uh Didache, I guess that's how you say it. Mm-hmm. I've heard people say it so many different times. Didache, um Christians actually redefined like don't get angry because anger leads to murder. Like that's just that's it. Like your your heart is where your motives are stored up until they actually mm-hmm. come out. Yeah. And so just because you haven't stab someone in the back or hit someone over the head with a hammer doesn't mean that that is not already in the works because of the anger that's in your heart but also uh when it starts to leak out with as you said the name calling or the shaming the embarrassment it's uh pretty neat. i didn't know that i didn't know that they uh they had said that in the, in the didache yeah yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've heard this passage used a lot, like, you know, before you bring your offering, go and make things right with your brother, um, about, you know, you can't give offerings to God unless you're, you, you have, uh, made things right with other people, that sure. kind of thing. And, and I think that there's truth to that, but I think too, is that when you have, when things aren't right, with your brother you give them opportunity to embarrass you as well Hmm. and um by putting you in debtor's prison or litigating not being merciful toward you and um not letting them show their best light Hmm. um and so i think i don't know i want to I want to give like the most generous light to that particular passage there. But um, yeah, I just, I noticed that in contrast to the first part, like how evil it is to embarrass others. Don't put yourself in a position where you might be, uh, where you might be priming somebody to embarrass you or shaming your family. Yeah. Um, so, and particularly your family, because, you know, what what is your wife or children going to do? They're completely helpless in that situation. Yeah, jeez. So, um, but yeah, I was watching a documentary about Victorian debtor's prison, and it was like, you have to go debtor's prison, do hard labor until you get off, and then you still have all the debt that put you in prison, and then you have to go back to the same situation to try to pay that debt off, and then you might still just get put back into debtor's prison again and it's just a cycle of and it's horrific and your family goes and visits you and oh it just seems horrible it reminds me of the matthew 18 prison scene as well uh, of um you know guy who wants his debt forgiven he can't pay it back he's going to get thrown in prison yeah and the master has mercy on him but then he goes and doesn't have mercy on the guy who owed him money and all the same just the cycle Correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's um, it's kind of interesting, you know. It's like he's like, "Thou shalt not commit murder," and 
don't be mean to people. <laughs> yeah. And so good. I really liked how you highlighted, um, brought in uh, the image bearer aspect because that's the thing. Like that's that's the calling of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. Is to be the reflection of God throughout the world, uh, His images to the world, or image. Yeah, we are we're made as His images, and. Uh, and I think that's completely uh, appropriate to apply that to the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's what it's talking about is the moment that you stop viewing someone else as that status is the moment that you begin to fall into these traps and you begin to justify or allow yourself to treat them as subhuman. And that goes into bitterness, anger. It goes into not having grace for people because Lord knows we see one thing that one person does and it's like we create the narrative of their whole story and how they're evil with they cut us off in traffic, and obviously they're evil and all everything. And that's not the case. Just like us, you know, we might we might cut someone off in traffic once or twice, but we don't define our whole life for that. But yet we justify doing that to other people when we take the status of them being images of God away from them. And I think that's that applies here as well. Um, yeah, and that continuing forward into lust as well. Like when you, the moment you you objectify someone. That's the moment you've stripped that status away from them completely. Mm-hmm. So, so easy to do. <laughs> it is. Well, because, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, during COVID, people could not attend the funerals of their own family members. Mm -hmm. And then they would see certain politicians travel from one very restrictive state to, like, Florida say, well, what was with that? And then the, that politician would say, well, but you have to understand my mom is sick. And then people yeah. would kind of blink and say, I couldn't attend my own mother's funeral. What are you talking about? You know, because they didn't, they, they saw the humanity in their own selves, but they certainly didn't see the humanity in their constituents. Yeah. So that, yeah, you know, sure. paid the price for it. So, okay, 527 through 30. I'll read this part. You have heard it, uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Um, now this is a passage that is something that, you know, women, when, we, when women do a Bible study, we're like, well, yep, must be tough, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, sure. I found this, um, this passage from Kala Rabbatai very helpful. And it says, sinful imagination leads to desire, desire to intent, intent to pursuit, and pursuit to deed. This is to have you know how difficult it is for a, ter for a person to turn back from one to the other. And so when Yeshua says that it's better for you to put, like, you know, to cut off your hand, yeah. he doesn't really mean cut off your hand, but he he's saying that um, it's sort of for one part of your body to go into hell than to, for your whole body to go into hell. And that um, 
it's it's a path that you cannot turn around. It's you're too far gone once you've gone down a certain distance. You cannot turn around and and turn the car around at a certain point. Um, so basically, just flee from sin. Flee from sin. Everybody's going to stumble. Um, and no matter what it is, I mean, I, I know that, remember, like, Winona Ryder, she um, was caught shoplifting, and she's, like, this major rich celebrity. Yeah. Um, but she just had this, like, need to be a kleptomaniac or something like that. And, um, and she succumbed to it. And... It was something happened where she did one thing and then she did the next thing and then she did the next thing. And I think for a lot, like a lot of times for women, it can be like, oh, well, you know, he won't know, my husband won't know if I get my nails done. He won't know if I buy the more expensive shampoo versus the one that's in our budget. Or, you know, he doesn't know the difference that kind of thing or something like that uh, or you know I can I can hide this from him because he just thinks it's champ it's just the same product or the same price um, whereas I'm indulging in these little luxuries um, and then all of a sudden it's kind of like you've racked up all of this secret debt or whatever it is and that's maybe just one example and then for men it tends to be more of the sin of lust of the eyes and things like that Sure. But it's always a cover up. Doing it in the in the, in the shadows, kind of, yeah, for sure, um, for sure. Jeez, let's see. No, I was just look looking at um, some verses here. I guess I had highlighted at an earlier study of this, and it's from Job Proverbs. What's Job say? Job twenty four fifteen. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks no eye will see me. And he keeps his face concealed. And then I have Proverbs thirty twenty highlighted. And this is speaking of the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. So it's all of this. It's this idea of, you're right, uh, hiding. Just kind of, I'm not doing anything wrong while still indulging and still trying to get what you're trying to get um, without anyone seeing it. Well, and they tear your, they, tear your eye out. They say for like affairs, it starts like for most people, it starts off very innocently with maybe just like mm -hmm. a, you know, a friendship that you have at work, and then you start confiding in that person, and then you know you have like you share like a problem that you're having in your marriage with that person, and then you know that's kind of like how the snowball goes down the hill. Sure. And yeah. um. And so it's about creating really strong boundaries. I mean, obviously, like as married people, we know that really strong boundaries are incredibly important. Um, but, but yeah, if you don't have those in place, if you don't talk to your spouse about like, okay, what's okay to do with somebody of the opposite sex versus what is just completely innocent but absolutely beyond the scope of what is okay to do with somebody of the opposite sex um you know like for example you and i it's fine to do this podcast but it would be 
so like, totally inappropriate to like go to coffee together as married people. So, sure. um, you know, putting those boundaries like totally in place so that it's, you don't even have to flee from sin. It's not something that you're coming close to. Sure. And something, something I, I think that in, in going back, sorry for guy, <laughs> adultery, um, uh, with the text, something that I think that is striking, and I just had a flashback from the late '90s or early 2000s, the whole purity culture thing. That was what I grew up with, right? Mm-hmm. And something that, looking back at the stuff that was really, really pushed, not that it's bad, it just I feel like it opened the doors for evangelical purity culture. From my experience growing up, it really put a lot of blame on the girls. Mm. And so it was like, you need to save yourself. Guys, you need to save yourself too. But it was the expectation of you guys need to dress more modest. You don't need to. Uh, you're going to lay the fertilizer for the male to be tempted. And and that was, I just remember that being the emphasis uh, of what was taught. And I find it fascinating here that there is no blame game that can take place if a man looks at a woman lustfully. Um, Yeshua is not even allowing that liberty here. He's saying, no, it's not. Then say if a woman is dressed inappropriately or immodestly and you look and you lust, oh, it's her fault. No, it's, if you do it. <laughs> yeah. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, you've, you've done it. It, does, it doesn't matter. Like, why are you trying to blame game? Why are you trying to, I don't know, I just found that, I found that slightly radical. Um, mm-hmm. And, and even, even against the grain of what is taught in churches today. Um, no, this is you. This is the, the all responsibilities on the guy here. And if you if you can't if you can't walk around like that, then get a sawzall and uh, go, put it in your eyeball. <laughs> well, you know, in Israel, there are some Orthodox guys that do walk around with their eyes closed when they're in public. <laughs> oh yeah, I've seen this. Yes, yes. I that was- I thought that was kind of was the neatest thing when I first saw him. Look at this guy. He's going. He's just praying out loud so everyone can hear. Praying out loud. <laughs> Look at that. I don't know how I feel about that. I, think I don't like being invisible. Was, but <laughs> Yeah. It was. So we were there. And this is like my first trip back in 2015 or 16 or something. Um, no, I'm sorry. 2006 or seven. And uh, I think there was a cheerleader conference or something going on. Anyway, there were some teenage cheerleaders at this falafel place like in Jerusalem and uh, and this guy he had a bag he'd been shopping and he put this whole bag over his face as if he's carrying a boombox you know to block his vision um, and it was it was it, I could see it from two points of view of course that was pretty admirable but it was also a very big scene that he made as well um, but uh, but uh, but yeah I know sorry I had a flashback when you said that it's all <laughs> Yeah, there are definitely people that take it way too far. Like, there's certain, like, Orthodox magazines that will, like, blur out the faces of any women and stuff like that. And there have been pushback. Like, we're not, like, this is not Sharia law, you know. Like, we're not wearing burqas over here. You know, we have faces. We're people. We, like, God's light shines, of, like, reflects from yeah. us, too, you know. Yeah. But, um, but... Yeah, it's it's learning to have the restraint to recognize the um, the humanity of of some of a woman, 
without having lust for her. And that I, as I'm not a man that I can imagine that that, that is quite a discipline, especially for somebody who's like 18 years old. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And you also have, you know, in the new Testament, there is, um, there are some, definitely some standard breaking role shifting as far as women coming into the ministry or being followers of Yeshua. Um, I mean, his his whole ministry was funded by women, right? Right. Um, <laughs> they were the patrons, and uh, you have Paul interacting with so many different women as well. And so we have this uh, this shift where no gender is not going to be something that divides us and, and men. You need to learn how to change your standard of what you're used to doing in light of that as well. Well, and this whole this whole passage is actually standing up for women. Once we get into the divorce part, mm-hmm. um, he says in 31, Now it was said, whoever sends his wife away is to give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Um, so uh, I love this passage. I think there's so there's so much actually happening in these two verses. And yes. <laughs> um, this is always a tricky one for pastors because inevitably in uh, America where so many people do get divorced, people are like, well, I got divorced and I'm glad I got divorced. Um, and people take it very personally. But... Um, there's actually like, I want, I can't even think of where I want to start. Um, first of all, where I want to start is, I guess where, where, what I want to say that I, that we should just put it, I'm going to say it and then we want to put it in our pocket is that marriage is a vow. And in the next portion, he says, don't make false vows. And mm. so um, the two are related. So we'll just put that in our pocket for now. But what is cool is that, um, and we've talked on this podcast before, that there's like the two major houses of Hillel and Shammai. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, the two schools of thought, and Hillel was much more lenient, and Yeshua quoted Hillel a lot. And, and he, like, 90% of the time um, sided with Hillel, uh, and Shammai was much more stringent. Um, mm-hmm. But this time, Yeshua says, I'm siding with Shammai on this. And so Hillel believed that a man could issue a certificate of divorce for any reason, even if he didn't like the way dinner tasted. That is what he said. Burn the toast, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and um, Shammai said a certificate of divorce can only be issued for sexual indecent acts. And this was holding men accountable to the seriousness of their vows mm-hmm. and not leaving women out on the on the street because women were very powerless in this situation. They were not able to issue a certificate of divorce to their husband. Um, they had, if they were divorced, they had no way to support themselves. Um, they lost their dowry. They were probably not marriageable afterward. 
and um, they were they may not have had anything for their children. Um, so this was a very dire situation for them. And in this way, Jesus, Yeshua was saying, um, unless you have a really good cause, first of all, you took a vow, and we're going to yeah. talk about keeping vows that you make. Yeah. Um, but second, it is this is a person who is made in the image of God, and you can't just throw her out because she made you a disgusting dinner. But you made a promise to this person. So yeah. any, any thoughts that you might have? Oh, for sure. I totally, I'm totally uh, on board with that. This was there to, um, to protect them. And, uh, and uh, I always like to reemphasize, uh, people get bent out of shape, of course, on this topic. Uh, so I think it is very, a very misunderstood verse. But even back in the Exodus, Exodus 21, you have laws put down in Torah where men are held uh, accountable um, for taking care of their wives and the vows that they've taken. Um, you know, it talks about well, if you take on a, if you take on another wife um, uh, at that time, it's crazy, whatever. If a man takes on another wife, second wife, then he, he cannot deprive uh, his first wife of food, clothing, marital rights. Like he has to provide all of these things. And that goes without saying he needs to provide those things from the get go. Mm -hmm. And if he cannot, then she goes free. She has a legal right to say, you know what? You're not taking care of me. I'm out. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's that's the Torah of God in Exodus. And so coupled with this, I think that gives a good scope. Uh, I definitely am, am not too on board with how, um, I'm not sure to say liberal or conservative, how people view it. People view this verse as a very black and white um, verse. And I think it has done a, a great disservice to many Christian communities when pastors, you know, uh, if there is abusive situations going on or if there is neglect going on, um, and uh, they said, well, nope, adultery hasn't happened, technically. I don't necessarily think that's what this verse is trying to, to concrete by any means. But, yeah, I definitely agree. It's, it's there, too, as a measure of protection and to remind the men that they're supposed to be putting their wives up and, and taking care of them and fulfilling the vow that they took, uh, specifically here in the first century. And if they're not willing to do that, well, they shouldn't have, they should have thought about that. They've taken this vow. Yep. And then if you want to read, speaking of, if you want to read 33 through 37. Yeah, here we go. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, you do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. Yeah. Love your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is this is gonna this is cool. Like what I love about this particular like passage that we're reading today, like all of it, is that. Um, <laughs> Yeshua's like, I'm going to uphold this group's belief in this, but I'm going to totally slap them here. And <laughs> I'm going to slap this person here, but I like what they're doing here. And so we, said, we saw what he did with Shammai. He's like, I love Hillel. Hillel's wrong here. 
I'm not so keen on Shammai, but he's right here. So here, he's upholding an Essene belief. Um, who They were so serious about not taking vows that most did mm. not marry. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Um, because they didn't take any vows. Um, and it's also like very unlikely that John the Baptist ever took a Nazarite vow. Um, sure. Because a lot of people talk about, oh, he took a Nazarite vow because he ate locusts or something. No, no, no. He was he was very much involved with the Essenes. You cannot convince me otherwise. I'm so convinced of this. Um, I I very much doubt that he would have um, been uh, taking a Nazarite vow. But you know what's funny is I read that people got so confused with the Nazarite vow, which is where you don't cut your hair, mm-hmm. and the Nazar and Nazareth which is branch town, which means it's Netzeret, but it is Nazareth, that they, that like a lot of people thought that Jesus was a Nazarite, which is why he's always depicted with long hair. Huh. Isn't that funny? That is funny. That is funny. I hmm. never would have thought that, but I read that somewhere and I thought that was hilarious. Um, I love it. <laughs> that is funny. So yeah, it's um. Oh no, you can go ahead. Yeah, but Josephus yeah. said of the Essenes that any word of theirs has more force than an oath, swearing they av- avoid regarding it as worse than perjury. For they say that one who is not believed without an appeal to God stands condemned already. Hmm. Take it seriously. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. So I thought that was really, really quite interesting. Um, And then it made me think about 1 Corinthians 7-7 when Paul says that he wishes all men would remain single. And it made me wonder if he was thinking in terms of this, that to um, take no oath at all, these words of Yeshua, yeah. if you can help it. Um, hmm. So, and that would put that, that um, verse in a totally different context. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's it's just fascinating to me. So Yeshua, of course, he's saying you know, vows so on and so forth. But he's he's just he has a. It's almost as if, and again, I like to think this is the the constitution for truly what the kingdom of God looks like when heaven is it made its abode on earth. This is the reign of God, and it's as if he disagrees with. How, how would you say it? It's as if. He's imagining a world where you wouldn't need to promise your honesty to someone, you know, um, as you were getting at with, with the Essenes. Like it's it's this is the world that God has destined us to live in. Uh, we wouldn't need to guarantee our honesty, but that that would be the integrity of everyone that resides as citizens of this kingdom. And uh, I think that that's one thing that that 
just hits me. I mean, every single section uh, of the mound is just another sledgehammer. It's like, gosh, like, <laughs> that, that's the standard that Yeshua has for his followers. Uh, and yeah, this, this is the standard that changes the world. Well, you know what made me think about <laughs> this is something that probably Southerners aren't as familiar with. I mean, that's something that parents are familiar with, but for like very good reason, because kids always get sick. Or there's just always something that you don't want to come up that comes up, and it's really out of your hands. But in L.A., it happened all the time. And that was you would plan something, and people would never give you a yes or no. They'll say, I'll see what, yeah, I'll I'll see how I can make it. Yeah. People were so flaky, or you would get an RSVP, and you'd expect 50% of the people to show up. Because something else came up. And usually in the in the South, if people say that they'll be there, unless like a kid gets sick or something like that, they're going to be there. Um, but yeah, it just made me think about that. Like, hmm, you know what? I should have bashed a, a few people over the head with this, with this a little bit more when I lived in LA. <laughs> this is good. Granted, you you sent me the invite um, to to do a podcast, and I think I like didn't answer for days. So I don't know what that says about me. Oh, but... <laughs> just, so you didn't you're, respond. You're a parent. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> no, we all have grace for each other. But you you didn't you didn't say yes or no. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. So I think that like when people plan things too, just even. As believers, taking our word seriously of, yes, I will be there, or really thinking, no, I can't make it, or this is something that, you know, this person is, they're wanting a, a guest list for a reason, and taking that some, some with some level of seriousness, even something as small as a children's birthday party, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's something to think about, um, so that people know that our yes is yes and our no is no. I don't know. For sure. Oh, for sure. It's that leveling up, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, all right. So we're on 38 through 41. I'll go ahead and read that. You have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other toward him also. And if anyone wants to sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Yeah. Now, it's important to point out that the Bible does say an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Mm-hmm. And that the context of that passage is, it's uh, I the limit you can seek retribu- retribution for how you've been wronged. Yeah. So, for example, if somebody takes your eye, you can't take their head. You can. <laughs> yeah. It's a boundary. It's a we can say that it's a boundary. It prevents excessive uh, exploitation of of the law of revenge or or justice um right 
But I love this quote. Forgiveness is the prerogative and privilege of the injured and humbles the violent. That's good. I always love to, and for me, I view it as, uh, you know, Yeshua talks about, or he shows, he shows living out a a cruciform lifestyle uh, in a way that absorbs evil so that it dies, if you will, die, but it doesn't continue. And um, I think that's that's one point here. It's it's Yeshua saying, "Listen, you absorb it. You evolve evil that was meant for force evil, um, and you sway it to something else. You force an evolution on it so it does not continue. Uh, don't use violence to resist evil." In other words, <laughs> right? Um, but uh, but yeah, that's just one of the that is one of the most radical things I think Yeshua says next to the next thing he says um, is showing humility and meekness um, non-aggression when it comes to the rest of the world and how they believe the only way to achieve things is aggressively or is violently or is uh, forcibly and manipulatively uh, and Yeshua says listen give in to show that there's another way well, you know, it made me think of what a friend of mine used to say, and he said, what differentiates humans from animals? Mm. You know, and people could come up with a number of things. And his answer was always, we can fast. Animals are unable to fast. Okay. They cannot restrict themselves from their instincts. If they're hungry and food is in front of them, they will eat it. And so it made me think that restraint is what differentiates us from animals. Mm. Um, So, and when we show restraint, that act reveals the animal nature of the person showing violence. Like that. I like that. I actually have a, a quote here from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, it's exactly what it says. It says, evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object, no resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffered. Evil meets an opponent for which it cannot match. Um, and I thought that was appropriate as far as the trajectory, as you were just saying. Um, fully human. This is what it means to be fully human, an image of God be a fully human being to act in such a restraint where you have the opportunity to let's do Deuteronomy say show no pity show no mercy mm-hmm. right as far as the, the murder trial goes now you have an opportunity to show something more to act in grace be prepared to act in grace mm-hmm. what would it what would the world look like if we walked around with those lenses on all day yeah I mean I I mean if I'm being perfectly honest I really failed at that this week no <laughs> I I mean, I had somebody come after me on TikTok, like a Jewish person that was just like, what you're doing is violence, you know, just Gentile, you know, you shouldn't invite Gentiles to celebrate Hanukkah, it's cultural appropriation and all of this mm. BS, you know, and I said, I don't understand what's wrong with like 
anyone celebrating that God preserved the Jewish people. But yeah. <laughs> yet again, it's Jewish holiday. <laughs> and, um, but also, it's like if you really, and then they called Judaism a closed religion, and I said. I don't understand that. I mean, if you really believed in Judaism, if you really believed it, if you really believed the Torah, wouldn't you be on the rooftops telling the world how faithful your God is? You know? Um, and I said that, and you know what? But I, I, my intent was to shame that person. My intent was not to... Yeah. My tent was, I was angry. Yeah. And we love to do it in ways that like almost look like we're not doing it. You know? Yeah. In our responses. I'm totally there. Yeah, I've totally done that. Like, how can I word this where I can't be accused of acting like them, but they still feel it? Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Why you got to call me out indirectly like that? <laughs> well, of course, it was my dear husband who was like, I don't like that. It's just like, what do you mean you don't like that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, yeah. But he was oh, right. And that's why I married him. Um, so, you know, it's uh, even even when what you're saying is a true thing, if you're not saying it, like, like that message would have brought that person to know the Lord. You know what I mean? It was just so silly. It wasn't, of course, God can use all things. It was just, uh, but I was convicted and I took it down. I always come back to whenever it comes to like, um, what should I do? You know, whether it's Torah, whether it's what does the Bible say I should do, you know, asking the Holy Spirit, what should I do in a situation? I always remember, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Act justly. Be merciful to others. Have lots of grace for others, because I need lots of grace. And... Don't be arrogant, because I know very little. (laughs) Fear the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I think think that uh, in any situation, um, if I can extend the most mercy, it's probably the best thing in the end. Even if I lose yeah. financially or whatever, materially. If I can extend the most mercy, I never feel bad about myself at the end of the day. That's true. No, you're right. I never question whether I made a, the right decision. I question whether I made a good decision. Like whether I made like the most profitable decision. I never question whether I made the right decision. Mm. Um, I don't, you know, maybe the most business savvy or, you know, something that would benefit my family the most. But 
I don't know. For me, it's like, especially when it comes to things like money or reputation or whatever. It's just like, ugh, this is all vanity, vanity, vanity. You know, it just comes and sure. goes. Sure. Um, but uh, the eternal things are always going to be eternal. <laughs> So, and I, I want God to extend a lot of mercy to me because I need so much. So, <laughs> sure. sure. It's tough. It's tough because it's so radical. Again, the upside down, the upside down ethic that Yeshua gives us. It's, it got him killed for a reason. He got many other Christians killed for a reason. Uh, and it, because it disrupts the way the world works. It disrupts the way that we like the world to work when it works in our favor. And, um, yeah, it's tough. That's tough. And then he, and then he goes straight straight into uh, wearing lenses of grace, as you were just saying, straight into, what, loving your enemies? He can't even, yeah, do you he want can't to even give us a break between the two, like something soft. No. <laughs> yeah, you want me to? No, do you want to read 43 through 45? Yeah, yeah. Um, through 45 or uh, 48? Mm-hmm. Uh, through okay. 45. Uh, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the just and the unjust. Yeah. So, um, these are direct slaps <laughs> at, uh, the Essenes mm-hmm. and the Zealots, yes. both of, both of whom he had as disciples. Yep. <laughs> um, the Zealots who fashioned themselves as, um, the new yeah. Maccabees. Regular boondock saints, yeah. So, uh, they were... Uh, you know, it being the Hanukkah season, the Maccabees, uh, they, you know, were guerrilla, were, were into guerrilla warfare, and they drove out the Greeks from Jerusalem and retook the temple. And the Zealots wanted to fashion themselves in the same way and drive out the Romans in battle. And they were training themselves to be warriors in the same way. Um, but the Essenes took a different stripe um, and they were fashioning themselves into Puritans um, and they like it says in their documents love all the sons of light and hate all the sons of darkness so they had a literal literal purity test um, like you could not, they, they, you could not come near them if you had um, any kind of ritual impurity, like leprosy or anything like that. They were not into um, being around any ritual impurities. Um, so things that Yeshua was doing was directly against any of their teachings. Um, so in like two pa- passages prior, Yeshua was praising them for their um, integrity and then he just slaps them across the face and says 
but you're gonna but love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you um so i just love that i love how he's just he's owned by nobody i'm not wearing anyone's jersey y'all need to wear my jersey i'm on team god you're you're bearing the name and this is what it looks like to bear the name of my father um because he yeah. has such a capacity of overflowing generous love, and that's what you're called to mimic, to be his sons in that absolutely overflowing love that uh, that has no boundaries. Man, that sounds so hippie, but it's so good. <laughs> and that's what he's suggesting. Well, and how radical is it for him to say he causes the sun to rise on the Romans. He sends rain on the Romans. He loves Mm -hmm. them. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. These are wicked people. They're doing wicked things to them and um, really making their life quite a struggle. And... um, and he, he's saying that uh, he, God is providing for them the same amount he's providing for you. So the idea is, don't you think he loves them just as much? So we're going to pray for them. Yeah, that would be, that would be a tough, a, a jagged little sure. pill, as Alanis Morissette would say. So, um, and then we'll finish it up. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles, do they not do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect, even as your Father is perfect. Yeah. And that's the thing. The, the perfect so, there, oh, go ahead. Um, as you just said, that perfect right there in that verse... Um, is his love for all. Mm-hmm. Gosh. Yeah. It, 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 read the verse all the time and it just never loses its edge. Well, you know, I have a story sure. about this. So, I have, I know somebody, we'll call him, let's call him, um, Dustin and Dustin, um, he uh, he he is gay and has HIV and was very open about having HIV. Like it was like, hi, I'm Dustin, I have HIV. Like that's how he introduced himself, just sure. to get it out of the way. And um, we worked together, and he uh, and I were like oil and water. We were very similar. <laughs> we very strong personalities very hot tempers both of us and um we were fighting all the time it was causing a problem not just for us but for other people in the workplace it was a big problem big problem for our boss and i didn't know what to do about it so i like reluctantly prayed about it and i felt very strongly that God wanted me to pray the Mishaberach for him every week. The Mishaberach is a prayer for the sick. Um, 
so where in the synagogue you um, pray, you lift up the name of the sick person. And so every week I lifted up Dustin's name in the synagogue. And every week my heart became softer and softer towards Dustin because isn't it amazing when you pray for somebody it is impossible to hate them. It's true. It's true. And wouldn't you know it, our relationship got better and better and better. So the time comes for my husband, Matt, and I to get married. And I give Dustin an invitation. And he decides... <laughs> This was in, we got married in 2013, and Dustin decides that he's going to be like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, and he's like, I'm not going to attend a wedding until everybody in America can get married. Okay. Sure. <laughs> and I was like, okay, <laughs> even though everybody else at work, and everybody else at work was pretty much gay, was coming. Um, I was like, that's fine. You know, but you'll be missed. I really, it would mean a lot to me if you came. And so he didn't come. But then, like, a month later, the Supreme yeah. Court made gay marriage um, legal in all the United States. So I was like, well, geez, Dustin, thanks. <laughs> and a month later, he ended up getting married to a friend of his. Um, for paperwork reasons, sure. not marriage, marriage reasons. I won't say the reasons why. So he comes to me and he says, Mary, I need to talk to you about something. And I said, what? And he's like, I don't want to tell you. And I said, what? And he said, he starts crying, tears streaming down his face. He said, look, I know marriage is so important to you. And I know you really wanted me at your wedding. And I need to tell you that I married somebody so that they could have a better status in the United States. And I don't want you to think less of me because I know what a person of integrity you are and how seriously you take these things and um, and then I started crying and we hugged and um, you know it was amazing because it was just that act of praying for him. And I still pray for him every week. Um, that changed my heart. That made him, that, that we developed a better relationship. And he came, and he developed a full respect for how uh, my uh, faith in God uh, informs my view of mm. marriage.
And um, it was just, it was a really powerful thing that I don't know that most people have experienced in their life. And it didn't mean that, um, I don't, we still have a close relationship to this day. Um, so anyway, I just want to encourage whoever's listening with that story that uh, if there's somebody that you're really struggling with, that they probably do have a need in their life. And if you can commit just once a week to even like the smallest thing, and I'm telling you, the Misha Bayrock is like the littlest thing. It's like literally just a prayer and then you just say their name. It can change your whole, your whole, the whole world for that person and how they understand you and how you understand them. And that's what Yeshua does call us to do. And it can be uh, world changing for, so if that little thing can be world changing for that relationship that I had, imagine like um, if we took that more seriously on a, on a bigger scale. So that's, oh, that's beautiful. That. So, sounds like you took an enemy. Sounds like you turned someone into a neighbor that wasn't your neighbor before. And I right. think that's that's the that's the game, that's the goal, that's the trajectory. That's how we become perfect like our father. <laughs> we take we do we do destroy our enemies, but not in the way that the world expects us to. Are we ready to wrap this up with rapid fire questions? Oh, Lord, sure. We'll do my best. I'm not good with questions. Yeah, sure, let's do this. <laughs> okay. All right. So you can blue sky this however you want. doesn't have to be realistic at all. Okay, let's do it. If you weren't a pastor, what would you be doing? Hmm. Uh, if I was not a pastor, um, well, I have I have three jobs, so I'd be doing IT. <laughs> IT. At... If you weren't doing any of those things, what? If you weren't doing any of your jobs that you're doing now, and you could just do whatever you like, could like your wildest imagination. Oh man. Um, honestly, I'd love to build things, cuckoo clocks. I don't know. I like really? I like I love build cuckoo clocks. Yeah, I think that'd be. Uh, <laughs> I've worked on clocks before, but I love building things. Um, so, so remodeling, cool. renovations. I just got done redoing our kitchen and customizing cabinets to suit our needs and such. Uh, so yeah, I really enjoy working on stuff and uh, building and fixing things. So. Cool. Yeah. All right. So regardless, no matter what your theology is on this, sure. this is a fun one. In the world to come, what do you want Leviathan to taste like? Oh, man. Uh, two routes you could go. You could go popcorn chicken. Um, or you could you could say something horrible like the sweet bacon I don't eat <laughs> now. I don't know. <laughs> it's the best unclean snake I've ever had or dragon I've ever had. I don't know. Popcorn chicken, probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What is your favorite book of the Bible? Mm. Uh, off the cuff, Jonah, but it's not fair, Jonah. Yeah, that's mine too. Yeah. Okay. Besides Yeshua or Moses, which person in the Bible would you want to talk to, and what would you ask? 
Oh man. Um Jeez. Moses. I mean there's so many. Gosh. Um Yeah, David and uh and um and I would ask what really happened. <laughs> That's just from the Samuel from the transition of the Samuel accounts to Chronicles. Um what really happened? So, yeah. All right, that'd be a long story. That'd be like you'd, you'd plan on having like a few There's, few days. That's few a loaded. Them. It's a loaded. It's a loaded question because of how First and Second Samuel are written and posed, and uh, there's theories that it's written in a type of like like apology literature that's more propaganda driven. Um, mm. And that's why sometimes you see things like happen twice, or it looks like stories or different stories are merged together. Uh, like mm -hmm. after he kills Goliath, he goes and introduces himself to Saul as if they've never met. And it's like, what just happened to you? And so that, so that that's that's the reasoning behind that that answer. <laughs> okay, all right, cool. I like it. Well, awesome. Yeah. So thanks so much for coming on. I had a great it's time. Been fun. Yeah. Thank you so you much. Know, it was an honor. We had to kind of re-log in a few times. I don't know what's going on with my internet or your internet. Or... Devil's not going to win. It's good. That, that's right. <laughs> we got it done. <laughs> um, so to our listeners, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Jesus Curious. I want to remind everyone that you can catch me on TikTok. Uh, I'm on TikTok, Instagram, at Jesus Curious, and I'm now on Twitter, at Miri underscore Curious. I've got no followers, but I post stuff all the time. So, you know, and I respond to Elon all the time. So, yes. <laughs> I'm a fun person to follow. I just have no followers. So, come follow me there. If you have any questions, you can email me, JesusCuriousPodcast at gmail.com. And that is all that I have for you. Next week we will be doing Matthew 6. And um, yeah, everybody have a great week. Thanks for tuning in. Deeper than the holes in the dark And higher than the stars and dreams Further than time tells a soul you're closer than the breath that you breathe Once I met a man who was murdered Raised on a stake like the snake But in Jerusalem and you could see the truth in him And it shone like an innocent child Shone like an innocent child Yet grieved like a man with an adulterous wife He stood in the midst of exile As the kind hand that extends to humanity from the depths of Hashem The walking instructions of Him Your love is deeper than the holes in the dark And higher than the stars and dreams Further than time tells a soul Yet closer Read.
Redemption of great Israel was born on Sukkot Grew strong in the instruction Healing in the junctions of darkness Inspected four days and found no blemish Four days and found no blemish One day wickedness Hope to save the rabbis God has been willfully gave himself over As the ransom lamb of Passover To buy back Israel from the world's disorder First fruit of the resurrection from the dead Your love is deeper than the holes in the dark And higher than the stars and dreams Further than time tells a soul Yet closer than the breath that you breathe